Welcome to the Frontline Conversations podcast, a platform that discusses issues around public policy and current affairs. We can't wait to share insights that matter to you. Are you ready to have the conversation? This is Frontline Conversations. Welcome to another episode of Frontline Conversations. Our guest today is Vice Chancellor of the University of Cape Town, Professor Mamukheti Pagin. Uh, Professor, welcome to Frontline Conversations. Thank you very much, Calvin. Thank you for inviting me. Sure, thank you. Uh, just to, to, to open the, the conversations, uh, since your, your appointment as Vice-Chancellor in 2018, um, it, 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 historical as it is, what, what are the challenges and the victories that you can uh, briefly tell us about in your short time as, as Vice-Chancellor of the UCT? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the victories, are, if you want to understand the victories, you've got to understand the state of uh, UCT when I took office. Yes. Um, it was characterized by shutdowns and protests and contestation and arguments and between management and students. And, and I have to say, all of that is history. Nobody even remembers that it used to happen. Mm-hmm. But, but that was my initial task. The second thing that um, was in place, and, and, and I take that as a victory, by the way, people think this is normal. It's not normal. We've been, we've been calm. We haven't lost an academic day to protest, just protest in general, uh, since I took office. We lost, mm. we lost three days after the UNNS, UNNS passing, and, 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 and that was uh, in recognition of the brutality and so on, and we paused at that time. But we haven't had a, 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 a shutdown, right? And other universities had, and, and that's something to recognize because you cannot have an academic pro, pro, a project proceeding in a context as, as it was. The second thing to recognize is that when I took office, I mean, there was a report um, that was published, uh, done by one of our academics here, um, uh, Professor Moultrie, that was analyzing um, uh, uh, how people are leaving the university, how we were losing senior staff. Um, Secondly, there was also, um, uh, there were only two deans Mm. who were substantially appointed. Uh, The rest of them were acting. And we have eight Eight, uh, we, we have six faculties and, and two other entities uh, that, that have deans, right? And, and um, you know, you, you take office in that state and actually two of the deans, of the eight deans left in like the last month or two of the previous vice chancellor. So I took basically an institution, uh, uh, if someone likes, they can say in crisis. And so, all of that is an issue of the past. And by the way, I said two only were in office, were substantially appointed. One passed on on my 27th day in office. That's a crisis, right? Yes. But, but that challenge, the, the, the win, the victory with that is that within 18 months, we managed to fill those deanship positions um, and in fact, use that as an opportunity to transform the leadership, uh, um, the leadership of the university. So, so that that is a victory because we could make significant appointments that mm-hmm. answer to the question of transformation and excellence. Yeah. We've also made other significant appointments. We didn't have an office of environmental sustainability, and sustainability is one of my key. One of the key pillars of my vision, and we we set up an office of environmental sustainability and appointed a director. We now are on on a road to to a sustainable campus. We we now have a strategy in place. That's something that wasn't wasn't there then. And and then we, we, we another victory is creating an environment where students feel heard. That students don't feel that they have to toy toy. That's the only time. That's the only way they get heard. 
uh, I've created structures and processes and ways of engaging that enable students to voice um, uh, their concerns, their discontents, rather than just go to protest. And, and, I, and I think that's, that's significance. The challenges, of course, Mm-hmm. Uh, the challenges, the big challenge is the price that comes with being a transformative leader. It's a huge price. It's uncomfortable. Because when you're a transformative leader, um, the, 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 you, you basically you prioritize the institution more than yourself. You, you, are breaking, you are breaking new ground and you're doing things that necessarily haven't been done because you, you, you're trying to, to get the institution to open up uh, and respond to, to be able to, to, to be um, hospitable uh, to students and staff from all kinds of backgrounds. Uh, just, just to come in, Professor, on that uh, before you, you finish your thoughts. Uh, on that point, have you encountered any resistance from within being a, a transformational leader as you are well and 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 I, I will talk about that because when you're a transformational leader you're breaking new ground it comes with the risk not only is it uncomfortable for you the big risk is that you actually have no um you you you, you because you make decisions based on principles you 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 will have many many times, there'll be many times where you have no one supporting you because you call out non-performance, you call out um, uh, people who don't follow proper governance processes, you, you challenge uh, um, uh, racism and discrimination. And so you run the risk because when you do these things, you, you, you don't necessarily do them based on any political affiliation. And so the risk is that you, you don't necessarily have loyal political support. It's not, it's not about people support you and stand behind you because they, they support what you stand for, which is the institution. So it's not about you, the person. If, if you know what I mean. So the risk is that. And I don't think it's productive to sit here and say, I came under this attack, whatever. The, the big issue is that if you're a transformational leader, you, you, you will at any one time upset uh, the left and upset the right at another time. And so you run the risk of having both the left and the right coming together in your name. Okay, so that's the risk you run. All you can count on is that um, there will be rational minds that say, but she stands on principle and it is in the interest of the institution. And so we have to support her. And some of those rational minds will be on the left. Some of them will be on the right. And, 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 and so that, that's the huge cost, um, uh, that one. And I continue to pay the cost, but my view is it is worth it. Uh, that cost, is, is meant, you know, that price is meant to deter one from being a transformational leader in the interest of the institution. I mean, you do things in the interest of the institution. It's not about me and whether I look good or whether everyone talks good about me. Um, it's not about being liked. It's about making decisions that are in the interest of the institution. Yeah, and Prof, yeah, just touching on that thought, you spoke of these opposing forces within the transformation agenda. Now you obviously have two different sides, two different views. There's the need for transformation. There are people who are opposed to the transformation and may somewhat be comfortable with the current status quo. How do you practically deal with that conflict? And what does perhaps working towards a balance, if that is the case, mean within the context of social cohesion? Well, the, the issue is that our vision is centered around three pillars that take into consider that takes into consideration the very concern that you, you're saying. It's excellence, transformation, and sustainability. And the argument is that excellence we, is non-negotiable. We have to keep pursuing it. We have to keep encouraging it and growing it. But we also have to recognize its downsides, that excellence can, can marginalize, can silence, can invisibilize. It is not innocent. We pursue it. 
with the understanding of its complexity. And our challenge is then how do you deal with the complexity? And the way you deal with the complexity is with the second pillar of transformation. Because once you bring transformation, you bring a lens to say, how do you drive transformation uh, um, uh, with, how do you drive excellence with the recognition of the need of where we come from as a country? How do you do that? Well, you do that by firstly understanding that transformation, uh, excellence doesn't happen on its own. It is enabled. Mm -hmm. The fact that when you call up excellence right now, in most disciplines, places, areas of practice, it comes out as white and male, is not innocent. It's because it was enabled that way. It was enabled that way. Does it mean those white males are themselves racist? It doesn't necessarily mean that. It means we had a structure and a system that enabled excellence that way. How do you then uh, disrupt that, that system and structure? Well, you've got to enable excellence in all its diversity. You do that by, 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 by looking at the people of transformation, recognizing where we come from and saying, well, there are people in designated groups, people who were excluded from this enabling. How do we make sure that they also achieve excellence? So it's not just to pull people in simply because they're black. I mean, melanin in and of itself doesn't do anything. I mean, now scientists even tell us that it doesn't protect us from the, from, from the sun in terms of not getting a, a, a skin cancer. I mean, so it, it's not just the color of your skin. It's, it's the fact that we're saying we need for our institution to continue being an ex excellent institution. We need di the diversity of people because they bring diversity of views, diversity of being and seeing. And that diversity is going to strengthen the academic project and therefore it's going to make us excellent, even better than we are. So it's saying actually transformation is critical to our sustainable excellence. And we know that because we saw that with 2015, 2016 protests, the rose must fall, fees must fall that even with our excellence, because the transformation pillar wasn't there, our excellence was challenged, it was rubbish. It's not that it wasn't, we didn't have excellence. We still had excellence, but it was called to question. It was because we hadn't understood it in its complexity. We hadn't foregrounded and, 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 and dealt with it in our vision in a way that we attend to the complexity. And the way to attend to that is, is to recognize the importance of transformation. So no, not to feel, not to be ashamed to have ring-fenced uh, pro programs, for example, to support transformation. Whether those ring-fenced programs are to support women or to support um, uh, Black people uh, uh, in a way of enhancing or enabling their excellence. You still make the demands, but there's a ring-fenced program that supports this group of people because we recognize where we come from. We can, people get the support, but they've got to deliver. So you still expect transformation and you, call, you hold people accountable for delivering. On, on, on the excellence that you are trying to enable. With that, we are saying you will have sustainability, social sustainability. You will have financial sustainability and we, it, we can then be even strengthened to work on our environmental sustainability. And that for me is how you balance these competing demands. And, and you know, the, the other thing is to also to recognize that we, we, we the, you know, I don't have a problem with the with recognizing the fact that a young white male mm. would be very angry at, at a system that says it doesn't matter how you how much you perform, we're not putting you in front row. We're looking at other uh, demographic because we want to transform. I can understand why they're angry, and 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 I'm not. I I don't come from a perspective that says, by definition, no white man will ever get a job. In fact, since I've been in office, I mean, we've made many appointments, and uh, one of them was of a white man. We've, we've, we've appointed, I've, I've, I've sat in a selection committee of an executive director and I supported and argued for an appointment of a white male. And, and the issue is, when do you do that? Is it about talent? Is it about whatever? It's not about just saying, well, uh, 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 we have five excellent candidates and they're the top of that, so we're gonna take that. 
Well, if we have five excellent candidates and the, and the others are from designated groups, we're going to take the other the, uh, 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 other people and not them, right? But but it's not about this agenda. It's not about being against certain groups. It's about what is in the interest of the institution in terms of making sure that we drive excellence with transformation to, to enable sustainability. That, that, that's the issue. So it's not, it's not exclusionary. It's what's in the interest of the, of the institution. And transformation is key for, for our excellence. We, we will never be an excellent institution that we want to be uh, without uh, the agenda to diversify and be inclusive. Uh, Prof, um, within this transformation agenda um, uh, that uh, many uh, segments in society have been um, pushing, including the academic institutions, they, uh, they have been called for decolonization and um, the roads must fall uh, protest was about decolonization. And uh, there have been arguments about the superficiality uh, of decolonization if it only talks to the falling of statues. Uh, last week, you had that Christian Gators, you know, announced new names and so on and so on. And there's been a lot of debate about that. What does decolonization actually mean in the context of higher education, specifically around the issues of curriculum? Because, I mean, students have been saying even the curriculum itself needs to be decolonized. Um, so are you able to make some reflections on that? Yeah, I mean, th this is a, it's, yeah, it's a, it's an important debate uh, of, of transformation. And, and let me just say, I mean, one of the messages that we heard from students during Roads Must Fall was that they did not feel at home in our universities. Mm -hmm the culture, the curricula, even the buildings and the artwork made them feel that they were foreign and that they were expected to assimilate into a different culture. That's, that's, a, that's a very important uh, thing. The, many of them didn't know how, how, do you, how do you do that decolonization? All they're saying is, look, we don't feel at home here. These statues, symbols matter. If I look around, and I don't see myself in the space. That, that, that is a I don't feel welcomed here. And if I'm, I'm, my accent is a problem and my way of being, whether my hair, whether my accent, whether the quality of my English or whatever is seen as a problem, my way of seeing and being, then I'm not welcomed here, I'm supposed to be something else. And I think that's, that's key. I can digress here perhaps before I get to decolonize and say, do, does the falling of statues mean that we, have, we are done with, with decolonization, with colonization? I don't think so. But symbols matter. What the problem with the current symbolisms in our country and in our institutions is that they only showcase, they only showcase one aspect or one period of our legacy. And it's the legacies that we are not proud of. You cannot wish that legacy away. You cannot wish the, away the fact that Rhodes was here. You cannot. Uh, the problem, and, and, and Rhodes stood up there, there's something about that moment when Rhodes rose and, 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 and there's a statue and so on. The problem is that that's the only legacy that is celebrated through the symbolisms around the country, whether it's through naming statues or whatever. And, and we cannot ignore that. And the students drew attention to that. Of course, we can say we could have anticipated that and dealt with that back in whenever, but it didn't happen. Now, my, my view is that we need to make other legacies rise. Okay, so we don't have the legacies that make us proud. We are not foregrounding them. It is the legacies that, that, that we don't like that are foregrounded and they, they were made to be visible by our past, right? Now, I, I think the absence of other legacies is, is a problem. And, and that's a debate for another day. And, and we can talk about that. And I, I, I've, I've been working on these ideas in terms of UCT, because I don't think just getting statues down solves the problem. Actually, it doesn't, OK? Uh, but it's symbolically, it communicates something very important. But the problem remains.
And so we've got to deal with that. In terms of decoloniality, I mean, decoloniality, it was, it, it, you know, it, it, it was important to have the cause for decolonization because it, it sort of provided a, a theoretical lens for us to pose different questions from the one that we posed before. Like for, for the first time, the, the, the different questions that became sort of public, were, one of them was what does knowledge look like when Africa becomes the locus of thinking? Or when, when, when our thinking emerges from Africa or from being African? What does knowledge look like? I mean, in terms of the academic space, it's an important question to ask. Even if the answer is knowledge remains the same, even if the locus, uh, uh, when our thinking, even if our, our thinking emerges from Africa or from being African. But, but, but the benefit of embedding our lenses of inquiry within Africa and formulating our research questions from Africa as a place of thinking is hugely important. And, and actually it can enable us as a university to meaningfully respond to the many pressing issues in our society that actually we, even with all the knowledge that we have, we haven't been able to respond to. How do we solve the problem of poverty and inequality? How do we, how, how do we, how do we even deal with the damage of colonization on the minds of people? But, but there are many other, there are many other questions that we can, we can deal with. Does it mean, I mean, quantum physics will remain quantum physics, but, but, but the, 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 the decolonization forces us to ask these questions from a different perspectives. And this does not mean you are rejecting Western or European knowledge. You see, people see decolonization as a rejection of something rather than as an opening up of the knowledge space to knowledges that have been excluded, knowledges from other parts of the world that have been excluded, not only African knowledge, but also Eastern knowledge. Okay, so, 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 so the over-dependence of the world or of higher education on just one knowledge system is a weakness. And actually it impoverishes the quality of knowledge that emerges from, from our corridors. And so, 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 so it is that, for me, it is that. And, 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 and I don't see decolonization. I mean, I, I'm against the idea of decolonization as, a, as evangelism. Like there's a new gospel. Now everybody must, be, must subscribe to this, must say amen to this. You cannot critique it. You cannot disagree. You cannot whatever. That's not how knowledge works. Any, any knowledge that comes onto the table as academics, we can critique it. Sometimes we agree with it. We embrace it. We internalize and reuse it, rephrase it, reconceptualize it. it. It doesn't remain just like that untouched. If it remains just like that untouched, it doesn't grow and it doesn't influence the space. So, so my view of decolonization is that it's, it, it's welcoming, it's opening up the space of knowledge to other knowledge systems. And in fact, critiquing why the, 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 the knowledge that's, that's dominant now, why is it dominant? And, 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 and how impoverished we are. Open the space for others, let this, these other knowledge systems interact with what's, what's there and, and, and let the field of knowledge grow. And so it does necessitate rethinking our curricula. It does necessitate uh, <coughs> sorry, research questions, asking different research questions. Um, uh, and, and, and that's good for, for, for a place of ideas, which is the university. And on, on, on that, um, uh, Professor, if I may come in, um, you spoke about having the freedom to critique what's happening currently. Do you think there's space currently for people to add their opposing views, especially if they are in contrast with their current popular views? So issues around decolonization, for instance. So for you as a Black South African woman, do you think there's space for a person like you to come up with an opposing view to say, okay, as much as we speak of decolonization and getting rid of statues, but this is my view, and my view may be necessarily in opposition of the current popular views. I mean, the, you, you know, you are talking about it as if knowledge is um, 
uh, critiquing is like uh, uh, black or white, you take this or that. Mm. Already what I have expressed is not a popular view. Mm. Already what I have expressed to you right now to say to you, um, decolonization is not here as a gospel. It, it actually, if, if it's got to, if, if it is um, uh, what it is, it's got to stand to scrutiny, to critique, to whatever. And, and it is not something that just has to be accepted as a gospel. There are some people who will have a problem with that and that's okay. They're welcome to have a problem with that. Uh, so, 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 so you're already making an assumption that I can't disagree, but actually people, decolonization scholars would disagree with me hugely. They, they, there are people who would, who would uh, call me whatever for, do, for saying this. Okay, so, so, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a different kinds of, 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 of critique. It's a different kind of critique. It's not a critique that says this thing must go. We don't want anything about decolonization. There are other people who say that. And I think just critiquing that way without, without it's actually problematic. You are saying we shouldn't even talk about decolonization because what we have is perfect. That's not scholarly. That, that's not, that's not, you, you know, I have a problem with drumming it down on people and just forcing me to accept it. I want it to be open to scrutiny. I want, because that's how it grows, right? So, and then of course you might want also Calvin, if you read carefully, you'll see that there are other scholars. I mean, I'm not a humanities scholar, a hardcore humanities scholar. There are hardcore humanities scholar, scholars where you would find um, the a, a huge debates between people who argue for the need to Africanize rather than decolonize. Mm. It, there's a, but it's a nuanced difference. It's not, it's not a, a, a black and white, but they are very, they are very robust debates. They don't agree, right? And then of course there are people that are feminist scholars who are not comfortable with this idea of uh, uh, just uh, decolonize, decolonization as, a, as an idea of uh, go, just going back to the past because that past, if you look at, at, at some cultures has been very patriarchal. Mm. And so they're asking questions about, can we critique that past? Mm. And particularly if we look at African knowledge and how it, it emerged and, and how the role of men and masculine patriarchy in the space, you know? So, so the people who just see um, decolonization as a debate between black and white people, just say you must, you must, it's not as simple as that. It's, it's a very complex debate, even within, within African people themselves, within people who say, yes, we should decolonize, but we must critique this or that. So, so it's, a very, it's a very complex debate. It's not, it's not simply black and white. No, mm. no, 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 not at all. Have you been called a counter-revolutionary? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you know, let me first say, I think, counter-revolutionaries exist. Mm. Okay. I, I, don't want, I don't want to be naive here and think counter-revolutionaries don't exist. They exist. Um, uh, uh, I, I haven't been called a counter-revolutionary. I don't know, not, at least not to my face. Mm. Who knows? I mean, you know, in this space, things are written on Twitter uh, by people you have muted, so you don't know what they're writing. Mm. Um, so, so I don't know. But even if I'm called that, I am so not bothered. I mean, I'm called so many things. I mean, yeah. you can just go onto the list. Uh, and I think it's a labeling people. It's a lazy way of debating mm. because you label people and you are saying, because you are this, uh, I see this on social media, you are a fascist, you are a counter revolutionary, you are whatever. Then it's like, let's close the debate. There's no reason to talk. I think that's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lazy way of, of, of engaging, you know, um, or, or calling someone a name and not giving details. What, what do you mean? So don't call me a name. Give me details of what you're talking about so that, so that I can respond. If you're just naming me a counter-revolutionary, then I've got no time. I'm not going to respond. That's your problem. Or a coward. You know, those of you who are in leadership, prominent leadership positions uh, are faced with, uh, with a huge task of meeting a lot of uh, unmitigating expectations um, that you are heading the UCT as a 
female black vice chancellor, then this is the direction that we expect him of you and so on. So, so I think it's it's quite a, it's quite a difficult task. I mean, I don't I don't envy you. But back to back to the issue of um, transformation, Prof, and to link it with um, access uh, to 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 higher learning. Um, back in the days when we were still active in student politics, uh, we used to say students are members of society before they become students. And I don't think I, I've changed from that belief. Now, when you're talking about issue of access, you mean we're talking about costs. And in a society where there's a huge bulk of people who are not affording, and that has manifested itself in the students who cannot access institutions of learning because there's simply no money. Uh, so to some extent, it's a transformational issue um, from which you as a university are, are not spared. Could you kindly share with us your perspectives um, uh, as to how you have or you are planning to deal with issue of uh, free quality higher education? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I guess we as, a, as an institution, I don't think any university can deal with the issue of free quality higher education because mm. we don't have the capacity mm. to offer. That's the realm of government. What, what I can talk about is, is perhaps the, the fact that I mean, access is important to the transformation agenda, as you said. Mm -hmm. And poverty should not be, um, uh, you know, should not mean that uh, simply because you're poor, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you'll never, you'll never get your degree. You know, uh, it, it, it shouldn't be that way. So we, we at UCT, we, I mean, we've always had um, mechanisms in place to assist students whose families cannot afford the cost of higher education. We, 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 we actually, I mean, our student financial aid is probably the highest in the country. It remains our largest budget item. Mm -hmm. Close to 1.5 billion a year. I didn't say million, I said billion. Mm -hmm. and, and, and a lot of that um, money comes from within. We mobilize money from outside. So, so it, is, it is a huge, but on our budget item, that's the biggest. And on an annual basis, we make a call for student debt relief. Mm. And all eligible students are considered for support, subject of course to budget availability. And this keeps increasing. So we, we make, we make um, uh, resources available, but you know, paying fees um, in some spaces is not enough. So one of the things that we, we, we have done at UCT is to make sure that our tuition fees are all inclusive. Okay. So that when you have poor students uh, that, that you, you pay their tuition fees and residents, uh, then they don't have other charges. So we don't charge additional fees for services such as unlimited Wi-Fi, uh, libraries, computer centers, uh, Jamie Shuttle, you know, the transportation of students our lab materials, facilities, uh, even facilities for students with disabilities, and even facilities or, or um, uh, material that students need for their projects. For example, if you're doing architecture and you have a project and you have to, no student has to go out to buy material. It gets provided. And the idea here is that we can provide the same material to all the students. You don't have a situation where wealthy students go and buy this posh material, the others have got this. It gets provided, they do the project on the material that we provide. So our tuition fee is all inclusive. It looks high, but it's all inclusive. Once you are in, everything is covered. Hmm. And um, we also make uh, laptops available to students. Uh, we started with students only who are on, on uh, financial aid. Uh, but then with COVID, of course, we were the first university to give everyone, right? So, so we want all of our students, irrespective of their socioeconomic class, to have full access to whatever they need to thrive in their studies. It's one thing to pay fees, but succeeding in your studies, you need all sorts of material to do that. And, and students from low socioeconomic uh, 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 backgrounds struggle with that. So, so, so that's, that's sort of our approach. Of course, we, we can talk about other debates about fee-free education um, and so on outside UCT. That, that's another debate. But as an institution, knowing our limitations, 
we do our best to make sure that our students are covered. I have to say that, you know, just in, in a, as a general point and, and uh, not even trying to be spicy, but to be truthful, right? So here's the thing. I mean, we, as a, as a country, there's a, there, there are certain things that we've got to change. You know, there's, a, there's this thing that no journalist will, will ask questions about. Nobody asks questions about. Why is it that parents are very happy to pay expensive basic education fees? You know, there are high schools, basic education that costs more than UCT. There are schools who charge annual tuition fees that are more than UCT. They cost more than us. And parents will pay that. The same parent will send their child to a university and they suddenly don't want to pay. Why? It's still your daughter. It's still your bundle of joy. We've got to ask that question. What happened to the bundle? Now, now, in a country such as ours, and, and the issue is not to just to, to put the challenge on those parents. It's to make those parents realize that we have such an unequal society. I mean, that parent who paid Michael House fees or Hilton and is refusing to pay at UCT, their daughter or son is in the same class with the child of a domestic worker who mm. was not able to pay Michael House or St. John's or Stephen or whatever expensive private school. And um, that child of a domestic worker worked so hard and they made it to UCT. Now, when they get to UCT, they are on the same queue with this one who went to Michael House, who is expressive because their English is better. And, <laughs> you know, and, and, and the issue is we can never attend properly to the poor hmm. if those of us who can afford demand the same kind of welfare that the most uh, disadvantaged of our, of, our, of our society needs. And we just demand it because, because sometimes parents say, but my child has performed well. Mm. But it's not, this is not about that. I mean, I, I have thousands of other students who have performed well. And sometimes parents says, but because we are black and she's performed well. Well, I've got many other black students who have performed well, um, like your child, sometimes better, and from a, bad, a, a worst background. Shouldn't we be prioritizing those? They come from farm schools, from village schools, from township schools, and they made it. And, and here they are, some of them, funds might run out because you know, the queue is long. There are other so for me, it's a societal issue that we need to, to ask about. Why is it that some parents think it's okay to, to, to buy a BMW on habitus when they don't want to pay fees of not an expensive university? It's not just a, a, a university that's not so expensive. But a parent is driving a Porsche car, but they don't want to pay 8,000 rands just as a, you know, there's something there. And you see, that's where we get silenced. As a vice chancellor, I'm not supposed to ask this question because if I ask this question, it's as if I'm saying uh, we are not going to provide financial aid. But of course, we will provide financial aid. <laughs> but yeah, no, 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 By the way, by the way, uh, uh, Calvin, you only see it, there are other people on the other side. You see, the counter. There are people who call us counter revolutionary. Hmm. Others call us uh, weak, uh, wokeists. Yeah. Uh, okay, so so you see, the left calls may call people counter revolutionary. The right also calls us names. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So the right is wrong. I don't want us to to take sides here because the right, the right wingers are wrong also. They 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 call us names, you know, uh, uh, the social media diva, a pantomime, a, a weak, a, a woke, a wokeist vice chancellor. Basically, they expect you to be anti-students. Yes. Okay. And then the other people expect you to be anti-white. Both are wrong because I can't just be anti-students. Well, what's, what's the problem? I can't just be anti-white without, you know, I want to be anti-racist behavior. Mm. 
Do you see what I mean? So, so I don't want us to take sides here because, and that's where I, I, you know, uh, the, my principle starts is not uh, always very popular with both sides, right? Because I don't think I don't think it, it is right to generalize that a UCT is now a bunch. It's led by a bunch of wokeists who can make decisions and, and so on. That's not and, true. And and you mentioned the university. Uh, you you. Uh... As, as we are about to wrap up, man, um, you mentioned the, that you, you have provided students with laptops. Um, and and this, yeah. um, there's an issue of, of the digital divide that was made even more apparent by, by COVID-19. To what extent is, is the digital divide real? And, and you, as a chance, vice chancellor of, of UCT, What's your experience of this digital divide between urban and rural, uh, the poor and, and, and the rich? I mean, we recognized this digital device long be before it became fashionable. Mm. So from 2018, we, we, we were giving students uh, on financial aid laptops. We're providing them with laptops uh, at the beginning of the year because uh, of course in residences, we've got computer labs and so on, but we recognize that it's not enough for everybody. And when, when COVID hit, we then um, uh, procured laptops to give to all of our students who, the missing middle as well. As long as people don't have laptops, we, 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 we gave them, it's laptops on loan because if they're on financial aid, uh, actually NSFAS does uh, provide funding for learning materials. And that's, that it's covered by that. And um, we say on loan because we want them to bring it back when when they complete so mm -hmm. that we can we can uh, renew it refurbish it whatever and reuse it for the for the next student you know um, and if they don't they pay a 4000 rand okay so 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 it's really to make sure that there's it's like it, they the laptop can circulate until it loses its life mm -hmm. but but we recognized that need long time before and we also the lockdown, uh, we're the first university to offer data to our students, 30 gig to all of our students, um, irrespective of the, the class, race, or gender. We actually said to them, they've got to opt out. So if you don't need the data, opt out. And many students did opt out, which is, which is hugely, I mean, it just says the quality of students that we have here. They opt out, opted out. Now, now that students can come back to campus, uh, uh, we introduce it and they, then they have to opt in. But we provided 30, 30 gigs of data to every student per month, hugely expensive. This is not mm -hmm. a cheap uh, budget item, hugely expensive. But it's important to make sure that uh, we, we close the gap. As a university, obviously we can't close the gap completely because for a student who is in a, in a far-flung rural area, even with our data, they couldn't access the net because the network infrastructure is not what it should be. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's why we then open up uh, uh, residences for, for uh, students, vulnerable students, uh, uh, many of who were in those um, uh, far flank areas where they were not. We, we started pr uh, printing materials before we, we brought them back. During the lockdown, we printed materials and sent, sent them uh, printed materials, hard copy, or some of them we send them memoristics so that they can, they can uh, uh, because they have the laptop, they can access the material. But, but we, we, we do what we can as a university, uh, but there's a limitation in terms of what is in our remit, what we can change, what we can't. And, and I think uh, for us, I mean, in our exec, we've had a discussion that says, you know, um, a laptop is like the, the writing pad of 1999, you know, mm -hmm. no student to start uh, the year without a writing pad or any, any pen or wait, wait. Now this is what it is. Um, they've got to get the laptop. That, that's just as simple as that. We now budget for it. We, we, we raise funds for it because our, our, our view is that student, no student, no poor student should go without, without it. Every student has to have a device. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, and a final one from us, Prof. Uh, just a quick re reflection on the, the previously released metric results. We have yeah. seen a decline of 5.1% in 
uh, in the in the past rate, and that's obviously very concerning. But I just want to get some of your thoughts around that. Um, how do you interpret that? What conclusions can you then draw from that? And then basically your thoughts around how uh, basic education then prepares learners for um, institutions of higher learning. And and you know, I, I see and yeah. so, 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 so if I could just come in there just to add something. Um, <clears throat> let, let, let me cite this one particular example. We had a, a consultant from the World Bank at some point was complaining about the, what he called the teachability of uh, students in, in, in universities and generally higher uh, institutions of higher learning. And someone uh, said, you as universities are receiving people that are not fully prepared uh, to enter the university because of the weakening basic education system. So I want to tie the question that my colleague Appel just asked with that, you know, uh, so that when you are responding at least you can touch on that as well. Thanks. Thanks, I mean, uh, um, I, I, I want to spend time on the second question, the first question. I mean, the first question about mm. metric, right? Um, I, I haven't studied the results uh, in detail, but I'm not surprised that uh, we have declined. Uh, I mean, last year, it was the best performance ever to 2019. So mm. 2020, actually, we, 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 given the circumstances, I think, I think the country has done very well. I mean, I, that, you know, how many students had, students were online, how many students had access? I mean, we, we actually have to see, uh, um, yeah, I mean, we have to see what this results um, uh, bring us, I mean, four years from now, the students who completed metric in 2020 will be sort of either graduating, whatever, whatever. It will be interesting to, to recall the stories with them looking back. I mean, I, I like looking back at that time, not whilst they are busy in the, in the middle, but, but it will be interesting. So I, I think given COVID, uh, I think we, we, we've done uh, better than I thought we would. So, so, so yeah, I have. I, I, I might ask deeper questions once I have looked closely at the results. But but I think the second question about um, um, uh, the quality of students who come to university. I mean, I often. I mean, I, I'm a professor. I didn't jump into the VC's office. I walked the journey from being lecturer to every. So I've taught at every level, mm -hmm. and and I often. Uh, uh, you know, get surprised at how we as academics find it so comfortable not to take a responsibility ever for, for the results. And, and journalists never ask this question. Why is it that, uh, and I'm not saying professors have to answer every time students fail, but why do we expect metric, metric teachers to answer every time students fail? There's never a question. It's like they are not taught, teachers are not doing their job, and so on and so forth. And so I've asked, um, why do we want ready-made children, students, but we don't think uh, high school teachers deserve ready-made students? Uh, they must perform miracles, but we are not. So I think the students that we get into university today is not the same student that walked into our classrooms 20 years ago. And I was an academic then. Mm -hmm. They are not the same. And, and here's the thing, they don't have to be the same. It would be a very big problem if they were the same because it would mean nothing is changing. What, what is a concern is whether the teaching is the same as it was 20 years ago. And that's what we should ask. So the student is not the same. They shouldn't be the same because the world has changed. There's technology, there's all sorts of things, you know, values, attitudes, they're different. But is the university or the lecture hall the same? If the lecture hall has remained the same and the teaching has been pedagogy, has been, then that's where the problem is. We never ask, we never, we are never challenged as academics about how we teach. Actually, the decolonization debate was the first time that university academics are challenged to, to reimagine, rethink their curriculum. And that's why it was a big uproar because academics are like autonomy. I decide what I teach, mm. you know, because they, I decide what I teach, how I teach it. 
Um, I even decide who, who qualifies to take it. Just the first time that the academics were, were challenged. Now, and I'm saying that, that as much as we feel comfortable to challenge metric teachers, we need to ask why is it that we are comfortable with the failure rates at university? Why? Um, uh, isn't this a dance? A dance between what the students do but also what the lecturers do. The quality of teaching at university is as important as the readiness of the student and the willingness of the student to put in the hard work. So the hard work is important, but the pedagogy, the quality of the pedagogy of, the, of what we do, of uh, our pedagogy as university professors is also important. So I, I think we need, we need, we need the both sides. Uh, uh, to bring to the core. I, I, would, I would used to feel that as, as I was teacher, I used to feel uh, if, if I have more than 50% of my students failing, I ask myself really serious questions. Really, I must, I must, and I shouldn't be surprised if any dad comes and say, my child failed, please tell me why. Uh, as much as I would go and say my, and ask questions to a high school teacher who teaches my nephew or my daughter or my son, you know, so, so, so I don't think it's a one-sided debate. I think it's both-sided. Mm. No, um, Prof, I think uh, we, we can go on the whole day. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating conversation. And um, I, think, I think you should come back at some point. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we, we have a lot to, <laughs> to chew with um, And maybe, maybe one Thank day. Thank you so much, Ben. When, when all of this, when we, we get uh, the next batch of vaccines, maybe we'll get uh, vaccinated and we'll meet for coffee. <laughs> yes. yes. But thank you very much. And thank you for making it uh, uh, comfortable for me to okay. be here. No, no, we, that's, 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 that's our aim. We always aim to make it comfortable. Of course. All right. Thanks very yeah. much. Have a good day. Then. Thank you, bro. You yeah, too. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. To keep up to date with public policy and current affairs, follow us on our social media platforms. You can find us on LinkedIn as Frontline Africa Advisory, Twitter at FAA underscore advisory, Facebook, Frontline Africa Advisory, YouTube, Frontline Conversations, and our website, www.frontlineafrica.co.za. You don't want to miss out. To keep up to date with public policy and current affairs, follow us on our social media platforms. You can find us on LinkedIn as Frontline Africa Advisory, Twitter at FAA underscore advisory, Facebook, Frontline Africa Advisory, YouTube, Frontline Conversations, and our website, www.frontlineafrica.co.za. You don't